Oi. How are ya? Welcome to another episode of the Very Funny Podcast. Here in Australia, you look around, you can see everywhere, there's no need for lawyer, you know, or, um, uh, death. There's death everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's death. You think to yourself, well, crikey, I don't want to die. I want to live. So you live. And then you sound like this. <laughs> I used to be able to do the accent really well, but I've lost it. I've just realized that now. I don't know if that's ever happened where you could do an accent really well and then you lose it. It feels like you lost an old friend. I lost an old friend. The other day, he was my friend, and then I lost him. He couldn't come out for me anymore. It's it's morphing into um, a British accent with a hint of Indian. Let's try one more time. Hold on. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi, oi, oi. Lawyer. You will get the lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> It's in Australia, see, everybody, everybody, everybody tries to, everybody, 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 here in Australia, everybody, <laughs> here, in Australia, <clears throat> here in Australia, here in Australia, Australia, here in Australia, everybody, <laughs> it's a disaster, no, my Australia. I have to get it back. I don't know if I should spend the whole podcast trying to reclaim my Australian accent that uh, was pretty shit to begin with. But I, I had a few sentences I could say um, in it. Whatever. How are you guys doing? I'm I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm doing well. So this is the second time I record this episode. Yes, my friends, I deleted the audio. So I have the video of this with horrible uh, camera audio. And if you know anything about my podcast, we take great pride in how excellent the audio is here. So, that was just unacceptable. Any. <laughs> so I have to re-record it. Which sucks, because I really felt like the last episode was like the best thing I ever put forward. So I don't know if this will ever be as good. There, always know that there will be another retelling of this episode. Totally different. I was even wearing a different t-shirt. It's it a different me. It was a different day. It was a different time. This was a pre-Muller report, so we lived in a different era. Pre-Muller public... Rep Anyways, I recorded it a few days ago. I sat down today to record um, episode 9. And I was like, I'll put out episode 8. <clears throat> and then I realized that I deleted the audio. Some of you tech-savvy people might be nimmer. You can always recover the audio if you deleted it. <sighs> I have everything on a QNAP server, a storage server. Uh, for those of you who are technically knowledgeable... And I deleted it from there. And to recover data from that, all of the data recovery software doesn't work. I need to pull out the hard drives. It's a five-disc bay. I have to pull out the hard drives, clone them, put them in a Windows PC, and then search each and every one in the hope that I can find the audio file. And it's a project. It's a Logic Pro project. So it was impossible to do. It would take, it would take way too long. It would be much shorter just to do this. And I didn't want you guys to suffer through terrible audio because the audio of the one we have recorded on the camera sounds terrible. If you know anything about this show, is that we take pride in the audio here because the audio sounds nice 
and pristine. <clears throat> I do like good audio. I always believe audio is more important than video. Doesn't matter how nice your video is. If the audio is shit, nobody's gonna watch. They ain't. All right. So, uh, in our last episode, in the last episode, we found ourselves on the brink of disaster. No, where we found ourselves was um, pretty much where stand-up comedy began. So I ended the last episode telling you the story about the first ever paid stand-up comedy gig that ever went down in the Middle East and how it went down and all of that. And this is going to be the final episode of this grand retelling of stand-up comedy in the Middle East, how it started. Because I'm still writing, we are together writing the continuation of stand-up comedy from the Middle East as it proliferates. And right now, the Middle East has its own scene now, and there's so many great things going on. Um, so, in insofar as how stand-up comedy began in the Middle East, for you to understand the motivations and, and the uniqueness of that scene... Those were the stories we needed to tell. And there's just a few more that need to be uh, mentioned here. And um, basically, it has to do with the no politics, no religion, one love thing, which I touched on briefly in the last episode. So when I was doing stand-up comedy, as you could tell, my main motivations were to bring people together. Um, I always wanted to be a stand-up comic, but the purpose behind it was to bring people together. And with No Politics, No Religion, One Love, I started doing these shows and stamping all of my posters with No Politics, No Religion, One Love. What was really cool was um, when I did the show in Hotel de Ville that we talked about last time, what happened next was I started to do like weekly shows. Not in the cafe. They opened up a small place uh, on like the third floor or something. So I'd go up there. We'd do the shows there. And it was awesome. Crowds were growing. And then I can't remember why exactly, but uh, we left Hotel de Ville. I believe... Uh, the venue was a bit too small. We needed something bigger. Also, um, I wanted to expand outside of Beirut. So I wanted to go closer to another area in Lebanon. And there was a club in Lebanon called Cherries, Antilias. And um, Cherries was a metal pub. Here's something you need to know about the metal scene uh, in Lebanon. It was incredible. Back in the 90s, um, it was an unbelievable, unbelievable scene. When I was in high school, it was incredible. And this is when I first came face to face with religious um, with religious extremism that doesn't look extreme at face value, the most dangerous form of religious extremism. This was so uh, this is obvious now. Uh, I think a statistic just came out where um, in America today, just as much people either this either they are the same percentage as a majority or they've become the majority of people who don't identify with a religion. It's first time ever. So there's been a trend of people abandoning religion for a while now. And the youth in Lebanon um, in the 90s were kind of gyrating in that direction. I don't think they were abandoning their faith. They were definitely abandoning religious institutions. And um, a lot of them were kind of like, we're, we're out, you know? Uh, we had seen uh, how the religious institutions and the generation that kind of came with them had really single-handedly destroyed uh, the country, destroyed um, all prospects, for our stability and acted severely irresponsibly. Nothing was gained. Uh, in my last show, I say this. I say the dumbest civil war uh, ever fought in the history of mankind was the Lebanese civil war because everybody killed everyone and nobody won anything. Literally, everybody eliminated everybody. and Nobody even eliminated anybody. By the time it was done, everybody was still there. And I always joke that they... Um, that they they're like oh you're you're still here <laughs> they're still they're still here I, I thought I didn't I didn't know they were I thought they were going to <laughs> would you like some coffee 
So that's basically how the war ended. That's my joke. But it's funny, but it's actually not uh, that inaccurate as to how stupid that entire civil war was. Sorry, I'm fixing this microphone. Get it a bit. There we go. So <clears throat> when we, um, you know, the youth saw all of this, the country was a disaster. Electricity wasn't there. It, a lot of it was attributed to religious divide. Um, as I mentioned in previous episodes. So I, I think there was a trend of people av- abandoning religious institutions or no, at least in the least, no longer looking to them as the um, purveyors of stability and uh, everything that should be good and well and dandy, right? So <clears throat> they started, the, 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 the churches and the mosques, and they started this bizarre thing where... People who listen to metal worship Satan. They play the records backwards. I know all over the world there was this. You play the record backwards. There's hidden messages. Did you hear that? He said, submit to Satan or whatever bullshit. And um, then they started saying stuff like, you know, they're, everybody who's in the metal scene is on drugs, uh, orgies on graves, um, desecrating and necrophilia and... And it reached a fever pitch. It was so ridiculous that in the late 90s, it got to a point where there was a crackdown on people who listened to metal music. And when I say crackdown, I mean, guys, don't underestimate what I'm saying here. This was the most insane thing I can ever think of. Churches, mosques everywhere began to openly condemn people who listened to metal. The police started imprisoning anybody with long hair that listened to rock or metal. They take in these young people. And here's the thing, the metal scene, I was a part of it. It was a beautiful, beautiful scene in Lebanon. It was incredibly wholesome for the most part. Um, it was a scene of a lot of people uh, who had weren't happy. It was a broken homes, okay? Um, here's the thing. I always say if you're from a broken home, if you have divorced parents or any kind of you know abuse issues, whatever, it doesn't mean that you're going to come out messed up. But if you're messed up, you're from a broken home. So I want to make that clear. I know a lot of people with parents who separated, divorced, you know, a bunch of stuff, the nicest, greatest people ever. But more often than not, these are people that weren't loved, um, didn't have a place to go to, and they found one another and a community and a family in the metal scene, which was really nice. And it it used to be really great. Like we go, and this was a place where like 16, 15 year old kids could go and watch a concert and stay out till two, three in the morning and there'd be no issues, right? There'd be no problems. There wasn't like drugs. There wasn't danger. It was safe. We used to have a blast, dude. I, we would go. And I I used to wear, I, it was me and George and Ziad, my best friends. We would go to these metal concerts and we would be the only ones wearing colors. We were the only well-adjusted children. None of us came from broken homes. We were very well uh, adjusted we were very happy in our lives. There was no depression. It was only, it was us. I would go with like a khaki pants and a, like a blue sweatshirt and like a big smile on my face. And then everybody there would be wearing black and goth and like, yeah. but whenever we'd get there, you know, it would collapse because we'd be so goofy and making jokes and everybody would be laughing and we would have such a good time and we'd heckle the bands and the bands would heckle us back. And I was famous for my voice being louder than the 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 vocalist on the speaker so the vocalist would be like like with the with the microphone and then i jump out and be like 
like on the loudest voice and it would bands would stop playing and everybody would be like yeah and then we can like it used to be a really funny scene and we would be there me george ziad fully clothed in colors in a sea of black and we would dominate the mosh pits right like i'm huge george is huge we would just destroy last man standing in the mosh pits it was a great old time there used to be this place called peak hall um and it was the funniest place to watch a concert in our life it was in a downhill so this this is a concert venue that comes at a slant so it's it's downhill and people would go to watch these concerts they'd uh you'd be headbanging and everything people be drinking beer you know and they'd finish a beer and they'd throw it on the ground a lot of the time they wouldn't finish the beer completely sometimes somebody would knock it out of their hand by the end of the night there would be beer all over the floor and this thing was downward sloped and people would start slipping and pushing one another and the mosh pits would go and you'd see somebody running at a mosh pit and then zip, he'd like, Ugh! and then levitate midair, come slamming down. It was the funniest. Like I would leave having lost maybe 3000 calories from headbanging and mosh pitting and maybe 10,000 calories from just laughing. It was unreal. <clears throat> Anyways, this amazing scene, they, they infiltrate it with this hate speech that doesn't it doesn't apply and they do it because they're trying to find a way for people to turn back to the church we and to mosques and religious institutions in general as a society um before 9-11 i think the entire world was a lot less conservative and i'll talk about that either in this episode or later but there is there is a very clear trend to me pre 9-11 and post 9-11 between people you know who who would observe certain holidays and certain things the way and the attitude that they would towards them and the attitude that we had towards one another i think everybody kind of feels now that they're under attack and muslim christian or jew that whenever you're under attack it causes you to go back and kind of bond into your tribe more right because you're afraid that if you're under attack, they take away what defines you. So you double in to what you believe defines you. But it turns out you don't even know what defines you. You end up being defined by your struggle to protect the definition that doesn't define you. Hey, how do you like them apples? Anywho. Um, so they start putting out the this was the most insane thing that ever happened. You have. Uh, suddenly crackdowns on youth, dude, 16, 17-year-old kids, 15-year-old kids, they take them, uh, put them in jail, um, beat the shit out of them. Do you worship Satan? No. Boom. Do you worship Satan? No. Boom. Do you worship Satan? No. Boom. Do you worship Satan? Yes. And then they continue the beating, shave their heads, um, beat the crap out of them, put some of them in the hospital, and then started on TV like saying, you know, like we're cracking down on the reason that our country isn't prosperous is not because of Syrian dictatorship and an American Russian proxy war and a, and Saudi Arabia and Iran. No, 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 no. It's because of Satan. And people were looking for a scapegoat and they jumped on it. So stupid. And you had these young kids, man, boys and girls getting thrown into prison, coming from broken homes, being beaten down, thrown into prison with horrible criminals coming out. With, with, you know, broken. Some of them never did drugs, came out, they do drugs. Um, girls sexually assaulted. Like, just the worst shit ever. And um, anybody who had long hair. I remember I went to Ziad's house in the midst of this. And his parents were like, don't practice. Because I used to have a band called Rampant Disorder. And I was a vocalist and rhythm guitarist. Ziad was drums. George was guitars. We had Ahmed Fatayirzi on bass for a while. And besides that, we never had a bassist. 
and we would practice. They're like, don't practice, don't practice. The church is having a meeting. There was a church on top of the hill. This was in like a village area called Aibi. And uh, there was a church. And I remember we, we, we actually went and drove and where we were parked a good distance from the church listening. It was packed. Like the church had never seen this in Dennis. There were people outside and every, you could hear, you couldn't hear a thing. I could hear the, I remember I heard the wind blowing through the harvest at the time. And in this church, you could hear the priest telling people about like to keep praying because Satan is amongst us and, and we're going to try to finish this. And it, it takes bravery. There was a, a TV show uh, where they brought the, the minister of, of affairs, like the main guy uh, who, who prosecutes terrorists and like, and like the biggest law offenders. And he was like nervous on TV because he's taking on Satan <laughs> and Satan's going to come for him. And you had priests like Mutran, Batrak, and like the highest order of the of the of the like bishops equivalent, I don't know, patriarchs, calling in the TV show, saying prayers on the TV show, and saying that we're thinking of you and and we know that you might lose your life because you're fighting Satan, but it takes the sacrifice of a good man. And this guy was like, Oh my god. <laughs> And it was the it was the most bizarre thing in the world, and everybody was buying into it. You'd have parents throwing out their CDs, and by the way, I was actually targeted as well, as was my friend George. But George's father, uh, uncle, was the head of uh, intelligence in Lebanon. Technically, basically, like imagine the head of CIA in America. So when they came for us, a phone call took care of that. In the Middle East, security is who you know, right? Or it's these, right? You either fight, and that really is who you know. I mean, this will save you short term, but in the long term, it's who you know. I have a joke where I say that I didn't get car insurance when I came to America because in Lebanon, insurance is who you know. So this was going on and you had people who left the country. After this, uh, they've never returned. I, uh, people that I... I um, they, they were boasting that they had caught 390 or 290 satanic worshipers. These are all kids, man. And uh, it was just the worst thing ever. So the metal scene just fell apart in the, in the 90s. It was a beautiful, beautiful scene. It fell apart. And these people that had a place to go didn't have a place to go anymore. And it was a big, big, big loss, big disaster. Fast forward to when I'm doing stand-up. There's one pub called Cherry's where they do metal concerts. It's one of the few places. It's underground. You go to this place, uh, you take a stairs down, and then you have this club. Think the comedy the, the comedy cellar in, in New York or something like that. And a lot of the New York comedy clubs where you go down a stairs and then you have this thing, but it was a big club. This place used to be a cabaret. And in Lebanon, um, prostitution... And strip shows were illegal. So what would happen is if if you wanted to get a prostitute, you go to a gentleman's club. You walk in and you order a bottle. And then the bottle comes and a woman will come and sit next, with you, next to you and entertain you while you're having your bottle. You're not paying for the woman. You're paying for the bottle. No sex. None of that. You come back another day, another day. Eventually, you ask the girl out. She goes out with you. You buy her some things. You gift her some money. She sleeps with you. So that's how it was. It was kind of like a a around-the-trip way for prostitution. Gorgeous, gorgeous women. Um, 
would be working at these places and everybody knew what it was but it was just like okay so here's the law that's a lot about what the middle east is like okay so i hear this is the law how can we work around this right because it's too difficult to get this changed um and in strip shows as well full nudity wasn't allowed however topless uh shows were allowed so you wouldn't have a strip show you'd have a cabaret show some of them were very classy think um uh, a crazy horse uh, Moulin Rouge, stuff like that. So you'd have like clubs like on the lower end of the spectrum, like Excalibur. Um, and those were, they still had stuff going for them. And then on the upper end of the spectrum, you'd have like the Casino du Liban, right? Which is the, the casino of Lebanon. It was like a national thing. One of the most, the most prestigious place uh, in the world, in the Middle East uh, for entertainment. It was a casino. It would think the Bellagio, think, you know, biggest Vegas things. And, um, and, and you would have, at the time, you had these things going on where you had a a, um, a cabaret, but you couldn't necessarily, if you rubbed somebody the wrong way, like if a government person came to your cabaret and you didn't take care of him or he got pissed off from a girl, they might shut it down. And that's what I think happened to the place that eventually became Cherries. So Cherries was a cabaret. So this was a huge place that was originally a cabaret. And then new people took it over and turned it into a metal pub. Okay. So I just want to give you the backdrop of how cool this place was. And this was the only place we could go. There were two places. That place and a place called Nova on the other side of town. That were really like the two metal bastions. And we'd go to Cherries and it would fit like 200 people. We'd be like 400, 300 people just sweating and... The roof was low, but the music was loud, and it was good times. But they always ran a risk in Cherries because they could shut them down at any time. It was still, like, illegal, quote-unquote, to do metal. So it could be like, hey, um, yeah, they're a metal club. They worship Satan. There's satanic rituals going on here, and shut it down. So I wanted to support the place. It was, uh, it was one of my favorite venues, and I thought it'd be great for stand-up because it had a great stage and everything. So we started doing stand-up in these clubs, in Cherries. I started doing a weekly residency. And at first, we were selling tickets for 3,000 Lebanese pounds, which is $2. And I think the first show, we had like 80 people, then like 120, and then like 180. And then we were selling out. Top capacity, I think, was 200 or 250. And then I increased the ticket price to 5,000 Lebanese pounds, which is $3. And we lost half the crowd. And people were messaging me like, oh, look at you. You've gone all bougie right now. Like, who do you think you are? And I was, and I actually was like, guys, it's an extra dollar. I live from this. Like, this is all the money that I make. And then I ended up getting everybody back. It was really funny. It reminded me to always stay humble. You know what I'm saying? Like, at the end of the day, people buying your tickets, that's who matters, right? And uh, the shows were getting huge. And then <clears throat> Lebanon, sub at the same time, was going through one of the worst periods it had ever gone through. So following us pushing the Syrians out of Lebanon, there was a retaliation where all of the opposition to Syria in the government was annihilated. In total, 14 uh, politicians and public figures uh, murdered. Uh, terrorist attacks, car bombs. Uh, they would park two cars in front of a convoy, get out with machine guns, spray everyone. It was, it was very, very mafia-esque and very old school, very violent, always to send a message, blowing out half a block, killing 20 civilians, 10 civilians, five civilians, doesn't matter, sending a message. And it got to the point where people in Lebanon were terrified to leave their houses at that moment. I remember there was a week, we're developing stand-up comedy side by side with this, and there's a week that came 
where it was on such high alert that there was going to be an attack. It got to the point where we were expecting a car bomb every single week. And at this point, it got so bad um, what was going on that, and this was such a dark time, um, that we had a the radio station that I work with, Mix FM, that gave me the, the radio show and everything that I do and my, my initial fame. Uh, they had an 80s night every Thursday at a club called BO18, which is a nightclub that's shaped like a coffin. I shit you not. And you go into it in the morning at dawn. When dawn breaks, the roof opens up of the coffin-shaped thing and the party goes harder and people go crazy. Look, let me tell you something. When it comes to partying and nightlife, nobody, and I mean nobody, okay? Like, hear me, like, mark my words, read my lips. Nobody comes close to Lebanon or the Lebanese when it comes to partying. I've been everywhere. New York, Los Angeles, Amsterdam, Hong Kong, Asia, wherever it is, Europe, America, Los Angeles, doesn't even hold a candle to how the Lebanese know how to party. And um, you'd have all of these amazing things going on, like the 80s night, which was sold out each and every single Thursday. And it still is. It's still ongoing. It's been like 13 years, sold out every Thursday, insane night. That week... I had a show on a Thursday as well, targeting different audiences. And that week, the 80s night was canceled. They had no reservations, um, which was which never happened. And the whole country was shut down. So I'm using the 80s night as an example because everywhere else it was like, yeah, that's to be expected. Uh, some other big nights also, you're like, oh my God, but the 80s night, like that's the one night. And um, people just weren't going to leave the house. Everybody was staying put because they expected there would be a bomb blast and you'd lose, you could die. There were innocent civilians in every one of these. And that week I had a show at Cherries. And I remember I put out a message. I had a group called Stand Up Comedy in Lebanon. From day one, it was never Nimmer. It was always like about developing the thing. And here at Cherries, it should be mentioned, this is where I started to actively develop other comics. People started seeing what I was doing. They wanted to try it out too. So we would hold competitions and we'd get, you know, amateurs and they'd try out their thing and whoever would win would then be able to do a bigger set and open for me and then we'd give them time. There was no scene, no comedy clubs. This was the beginning. Cherries was the first place that a hijabi female stand-up comic, a, a, a woman in a hijab, right? Covered up. Muslim did stand-up comedy in the history of the Middle East. That was in one of my shows in Antilles. Antilles is a very Christian area and um, Christian neighborhood, just a lot of Christian people there. And I remember her name was Arifi Waked. And Arifi was a hilarious woman. And she got standing ovations. You got to understand that this kind of intersectionality between religions, people thought it wouldn't happen, but we knew the youth that it was happening because we were the ones that were turning the page around. And this was like the first time you could see it publicly, right? Where you had this, this hijabi Muslim woman doing an American art form, crushing it. She went up, she ended up getting on TV later on and uh, met her husband that way. And she's married and lives now, I believe, in Washington, D.C., so shout out to her. So Cherries had these incredible, incredible things going on. That week, I had a big show for myself. And I put out a message on stand-up comedy in Lebanon. And I said, about the show this week, please don't come. Stay home. Stay safe. I can never ask you to come. I can never ask you to buy a ticket. Because if something were to happen, I would never be able to forgive myself. 
However, as an entertainer, if this situation is getting too much for you to bear, my duty, my responsibility to you is I'm going to be there. And for the two or three people that are going to show up, if it's too much for you, drinks are on me. I'll buy you a drink. We'll sit down. We'll hang out. And we'll laugh. I'll give you that escape, right? I know Cherries is underground. And, it, and you might think that's a safe place to be if there is a bomb blast. But still, um, and theoretically, it would be safer than anywhere else. But still, don't come, right? And if you do come, you have to come. I'll be there because that's my responsibility. If nobody shows up, that's cool. It'll be me and the bartender will be dope. That night was the biggest night of stand-up outside of a theater I may have ever done. Over 650 people showed up. And this is a club that fits about 200, at, at absolute max capacity, 250. When I say there were people sitting on the stairs coming down, people sitting on the bar, and people sitting in each other's laps, some people having more than one person in a, so we want, you know, a guy, a girl in his lap, another girl in her lap, or two on his, like it was insane. Sitting on tables, you could barely breathe. But the laughter was unbelievable, and the night went on for hours. And that was one of the most historic nights I've ever experienced because what was happening was the youth found what they've been looking for. We found each other. That community we had in metal was just kind of like a, a, a brief look or a sample of what could be when people don't have the obligations towards their previous generations, their parents and their religion and the shackles that kind of binded them. Their, 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 their obligations were to one another and to the future. And we were all there. Everybody wanted to be there because we wanted to be part of that spirit of nothing can bring us down. That's what Lebanon is like. Lebanon is, is a very Phoenician, Phoenix-type spirit. It's a testament to the insurmountable, indestructible, indomitable human spirit is found in Lebanon. These people just simply will not ever give in or give up. The show was unbelievable. And I remember... Um, Mix FM at the time. So what happened is after this show, this is this is at, this night and its significance factors into a very big thing that happened to really legitimize stand-up comedy. Um, I, I started going. I cherries ended up closing down. They 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 weren't making enough money. Uh, the the police kept coming and harassing them, saying they're going to shut them down. So they'd have to keep bribing them and pay them exuberant amounts of money. Um, the owner wanted to started increasing the rent. They ended up shutting down. We did a big show. And we ended the run at Cherries. I tried to raise money for them. It didn't work. We ended the run. So I ended up then going to other clubs around the country. This is how the scene started to grow. I would go to Jamezi, an area there. And uh, I went to BO18, that club I talked about earlier. They had another branch called BO18 Classic, which is no longer there, but was wicked for doing stand-up. Like, it was the sexiest club. Like, I'm doing nightclubs that are set up, but for ultimate class. So doing stand-up in them is just beautiful. And then I did, um, after that, um, we did BO18 Classic. Then I jumped to Jamezi. I did a venue called Bar Louis. I did a residency there. Then I went to another place called Snatch, uh, where I did a residency there every Wednesday for like seven, eight months. And then it was just like, I'd find a bar here, I'd do there, and it, it started to become really big. When that night at Cherries happened, um, that was a big night. I came to Raj at Mix FM and he told me the fact that you were able to bring that many people together, I hope you understand 
what that means about what you're doing and where you're going with this. Mix FM's 80s night had to shut down. You sold more people, more tickets than anybody in the country and under these circumstances, but even without these circumstances, that was one of the biggest events to ever happen in the club in the country, period. So I came to him and I said, look, I've this scene is incredible and what it can do and what it can achieve is unbelievable. I want to define it. And here's another thing that happened. While I was doing my run at Bar Louie, Showtime approached me. This was Orbit Showtime. So this is Showtime, uh, the Arabic version. So this is Showtime America uh, partnered with, I believe it was Orbit Showtime at the time. It might have been a different name, but with Arab people. And they had merged two uh, satellite networks together. Showtime today in the Middle East, people might not know this, actually has nothing to do with Showtime America. They ended up splitting up and they just kept the name because that's what Arabs do. (laughs) And Showtime came up to me and they said, Nimmer, let's do something together. We love your stand-up. Let's do a tour. Let's promote. Hit us with some ideas. Uh, we'll, We'll film it. We'll put you everywhere. And I recognized immediately this would make me infamous. But at the same time, I understood that this would be a bad move for me. See, I'm a business student through and through, right? Like I'm a businessman. I was at the time, I still call myself a student because I'm always learning. And I knew that I was an incredible stand-up comic. I had skills nobody had. I was able to improvise and go on stage and cold open an hour of new material every week. No problem. Killer material. But I wasn't ready for prime time. I was worried that if I toured and people didn't like me, then they'd associate me as stand-up comedy. I don't like Nimmer, therefore I don't like stand-up. Anybody who understands anything about business knows that your viability depends on the ability to have an industry built around you that can support you. It was always my interest to build an industry. I was I was creating my own competition with 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 these, you know, comedians that I was doing competitions for and coaching them and 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 having writing sessions with them and trying to get them to that level and it was all creating my own competition. I told them, I'm afraid that if I do this stand-up, maybe I'm really funny to Lebanese people. I might not be that funny to other people. I don't know if my material would would connect. So I suggested The Axis of Evil. I had a DVD. The Axis of Evil was a comedy troupe of uh, several Arab-American comedians, uh, a few of which have become very famous now and are incredible. And you know them. Maz Jabrani, Aaron Cater, Dino Bidalla. And these comics had put together a Comedy Central special and it was a huge hit. And I said, man, we should bring these people over. I'll do the show in Lebanon. I'll help you promote and produce the shows everywhere else. And they said, let's do it. So they ended up bringing the Axis of Evil to the Middle East for a tour. And I think that was the first time that stand-up actually hit the mainstream. Up until then, it had been this just about to break, underground movement, just about to break through the surface. When we brought the Axis of Evil out, people saw it was on TV They were selling out everywhere and people started to see like, wow, these are our own people like Arab Americans, Persian Americans. They're succeeding doing this art form. They're making a living. They're like, this isn't a fad. There's something here. And people started to jump on board. And even the shows in Lebanon, I actually organized an inaugural show to kind of promote it at AUB, my alma mater, my university, American University of Beirut on the stage where stand-up started in the Middle East at the Batesha Auditorium. We brought them out, Maz and, and Dean and Aaron brought them out and they were late. I ended up doing, this is so true. 
I ended up doing another 45 minutes on that stage. They were supposed to be there. They were stuck in traffic. I stayed on stage for about 45 minutes. Like it was crazy how like history was repeating itself. And we brought them out and we booked, you know, theaters all over and it was a huge success. So in tandem, it was starting to become this really big thing. We started to have people who wanted to be comics from around the region. They discovered a guy in Dubai called One Ho Chung. And One Ho is an Asian uh, person who worked in Showtime. He's Korean. And they were like, this completes the axis of evil, an Asian dude. So, and he's really good looking. And what's amazing about One Ho, and One Ho is now super, super, super famous and very successful. What's amazing about One Ho, besides his incredible good looks, and his charisma and his likability is he speaks flawless, flawless Arabic. He's a singer. He sings Arabic better than any Arabic singer. You know that saying, whenever you do, there's an Asian who does it better than you? Wan Ho was that guy. No matter what, he always looks better than anyone. He always sounds better than anyone. The guy's amazing. And they brought him with them, and then they started discovering other local talents on the tour. Like, it was an amazing thing. Axis of Evil wraps up. Comedy starts to get bigger and bigger. I then sit down with Raj and I tell him I have an incredible idea. Stand-up has the ability to change the world. And I know this. And it can change the Middle East in ways nobody could imagine. With no politics, no religion, one love, bringing people together, we can change. We can do what everybody says is impossible in the Middle East. We can unite this place. So I have an idea. I want to do a tour of all the biggest venues in Lebanon. From one end of the country to the other. But I want to do it to raise money for the Children's Cancer Center of Lebanon, St. Jude's. Two reasons. One, it's an incredible cause. Uh, my grandfather, and I'll talk about this in another episode one day, but my grandfather, Jad, who was a huge influence on my life, passed away uh, because of uh, cancer. So I, I was very close to this, and I had seen what it do- did. Also, the St. Jude's Children's Cancer Center of Lebanon was located on the campus of the American University of Beirut. So, you know, I had been there several times and visited And Danny Thomas, a very famous American stand-up comic who is Lebanese, started the St. Jude's Children's Cancer Center of Lebanon. So when you put all this together, it was a no-brainer for me. And he said, Nimmer, um, and this Raj, he's been behind every big step in my career. He said, no, but it's wrong. You shouldn't be doing these clubs anymore. You need to do theaters. And I said, man, but that's like... Like, what theater? And he's like, you should do the Casino du Liban, the most prestigious theater in the Middle East. Fits 1,015 people. Trust me, I know the exact number. And I told him, man, I don't don't know. Like, I don't know the first thing about booking a theater. He's like, I'll do it. I'll take care of everything. You market, you promote. I'll market, I'll promote. We'll sell it out, but I'll book everything for you. I'll pay for everything. I got you. And, but I said, but I want to give 100% of the proceeds to the Children's Cancer Center. He said, I, what more would I want? I don't want any money. If you don't want money, I don't want money. Let's do it. So we contact Children's Cancer. We put it together. And we put this whole tour. Now, here's the thing. In Lebanon, the clubs at the universities were politicized. I mentioned this in my last podcast episode, two episodes ago, maybe when I was talking about my involvement in the finance club. Actually, more than two episodes ago. Probably episode one of um, how stand-up comedy started in the Middle East. And the finance club, they were trying to infiltrate it with politics and us being non-political was revolutionary. So all the clubs in Lebanon are highly politicized. It's so disgusting. They actually follow the elections 
the newspapers and the adults, this is how despicable and disgusting and and embarrassing and humiliating, just shameful our uh, former generation is in Lebanon. They would follow the elections of the universities like they were political elections and use them to declare victory. And they would they would push the parents, would push their children to be political and to, to fight for politicians. There would be fights on campus. You'd have the debate club and the social club, but everybody knew that the debate club was this and the social club was that and that club was this and the tennis club was this and... And newspapers were covering it, and nobody thought this was wrong. Everybody was like, yeah, this is how it is. And, um, you know, with everything going on in the country, the political assassinations, um, people like myself, who clearly could see that it was the Syrians that were doing all of this, people on the other side of the political spectrum who clearly could see that it wasn't the Syrians who were doing this, these divisions were being exploited. The difference was I wouldn't care if somebody believed that the Syrians were doing it or weren't doing it. I'm like, that's not, I'm not here, you know, I'm just here to entertain. These are my own beliefs. And um, I was always very mature about the fact that a lot of, that there's big machines at work that try to spin you into an alternate reality. And uh, I'm not going to blame anyone for being uh, subject to that. And who knows, maybe I am. So how do we know? The, the division was insane. So I told Raj what I want to do is I'm going to go to every campus in Lebanon. I'm going to put a show together to publicize my show, free comedy show, but we're raising money for the Children's Cancer Center of Lebanon. I'm going to do it myself. I'll hold a donation box and anybody who wants to join me will. After I do the show, if anybody would like to donate, that's it. We're not selling tickets or anything. The only condition is no club can host me. All the clubs have to host me. So every university I go to, if I were to go with one club or the other, then I would be painted politically. So I said, I'm going to get the clubs to host me together. You have to understand, there is no way this had ever, it would never happen. Not in a billion years would this ever happen. Raj was like, it's not going to happen. I'm like, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to use the fact that it's for the Children's Cancer Center of Lebanon to shame these people into accepting it. Because if you go to one group and you say, and they say, no, we won't. But you go to the other group and they say, yes, we will. The other group is going to look like the hero. This is very, like, you got to think negotiation. You have two parties, right? In, in most cases, it was three or four. But let's say you have two parties. You're going to go to one party. You're going to tell them, hey, I want you to be part of this amazing thing. They say, nah, I never walk with those people. So you go to the other people and you say, look, I want you to be a part of this amazing thing. And they're smart. And they say, we would love to. We would love to unite with the other side to do something for charity. And then you come out and you say, you know, we approached both sides. They didn't want to, but they did. Guess who's the good guy? So it was kind of by mutual asserted dominance that both everybody knew that they had no way to say no. I put them in an impossible position. And I came to him and I said, I want to do this event. Everybody hosts me together and you don't wear your colors. I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. The clubs in in, in the Middle East, in Beirut, were so politicized that they wore colors. So let's say this club belonged to this political party. They wore orange. The other one to that political party, they wore blue. This one wore yellow. I told them, you can't wear your colors. Listen to me talk like I'm walking into the hood or something in 1990s, 80s Los Angeles, trying to broker a truce between the Crips and the Bloods. And I'm trying to tell people you can't wear your colors. Listen to my words. I'm telling students, you can't wear your colors. You can't wear your colors. We had youth 
identifying with gang colors for political groups that were run by adults who were fueling this behavior. You can't wear your colors. That is a reality that existed in Lebanon and to some extent exists, but on a much smaller scale now due to work like this. And we got every university to agree. Every single university went on board and it was the most beautiful thing in the world. Some universities went above and beyond. I went to the Notre Dame University, NDU. They shut down the university. They gave a day off. And we had what, like 2,000, 3,000 students came and all of the clubs hosted me, everybody wearing white. And everybody came together and they started competing to bring more people out so they could be like, yeah, we were so in this. We were in this more than the other people. We're so progressive. We're more progressive. than." So they found a healthy way to compete. And it really put people standing side by side that nobody would have imagined. That NDU show, it was all of us, them in the white t-shirts, me carrying these donation boxes after the show, collecting money. AUB, they, they welcomed me back with a hero's welcome. I remember walking down the Isam Fetis Hall, which is this huge venue we used to do exams in and big classes in. I'm walking down, I don't think we ever did exams there, but it was big classes, walking down the stairs and you couldn't fit a needle in that place. There were people hanging off the windows. There were people hanging off. It was insane. Huge applause. Um, uniting people everywhere. When I went to Uzek, the University of Kaslik, it was, they had to do it outdoors because they couldn't have a venue that would fit that many people. Lebanese American University in Beirut, in Jbeil, they did it. Like it was the most beautiful, remarkable thing ever. And we brought all of these people together. And it was all for stand-up comedy. And we built this, and the whole country started talking about this. By the time the shows came at the Casino du Liban, we had two sold-out shows. That's 2,030 people. My first ever theatrical show. This was one year, one year after my show that I talked about in the last episode where I told people to pay. Exactly one year, I was standing on a stage doing my first big show and it was called this is why i'm hot and i'll never forget the reception was amazing people loved the show it was incredible it was everything i wanted it to be and more to see my name up on the marquee at the casino de liban on the they had these billboards as you drive in i get goosebumps just thinking about that moment it was it was i mean legends had been there and now i'm there like it was it was surreal and, um, but I think the most exciting thing about all of it was the next day, the reviews in the newspapers. And I remember one newspaper wrote, uh, about me that I presented a noble and honorable art form. They said, uh, Nimr Abu Nassar, it's my name pronounced in Arabic. You called them, introduces a stand up comedy, stand up comedy, uh, fun. Al-Fan al-Nabila wa Sharifa, a noble and honorable art form. And I was like, that's what we want. I wanted people to recognize that this is a noble and honorable art form that has the potential, should you choose, to move the immovable. And we raised a ton of money for the Children's Cancer Center of Lebanon. And I was completely broke. I had debt i didn't have a dollar to my name but it felt like i had made 
a million dollars. I felt like the richest man in the world. And um, <clears throat> it was a truly incredible moment. It was it was the legitimization of what a regional comic could do. When we had brought the Axis of Evil, they did theaters and stuff, but these people were coming from America and Comedy Central. Still, people thought that no Arab could actually do that. And I did it. And then it expanded. And I went to other countries in the Middle East. That right there is where I would stop the story of how stand-up comedy started in the Middle East. But I will give context to where we are now. After that show, I started doing shows everywhere. Uh, we went to Jordan. Um, and Dino Bidala from the Axis of Evil started organizing shows in Jordan, the Daman Comedy Festival. And that's where I started to... To um, experience what I can't call more than basically Uncle Tom behavior from Arab people. For those of you who don't know, Uncle Tom is a uh, slang to refer to black people who hate their own race or believe that they are not the uh, equal as other races. Um, it comes from a book called Uncle Tom. A white woman wrote it about a, a black guy who had many chances to escape from slavery during the years of slavery here in America, but he stayed because he felt that if God wanted him to go, he would have told him, and he had to take care of this white girl. So it's a slang term called Uncle Tom. It's very derogatory. And Arab Uncle Toms, I mean, every race has their Uncle Toms, but I was starting to experience it. We went to the Duda Amman Comedy Festival, and I was a name by that point. I was drawing a lot of people, and when I would perform, I was hands down, and I'm saying this without exaggerating, I was the best one on that stage, which isn't difficult, because not only was I an outstanding stand-up comic, but I was from the area, so I had a innate ability to speak more directly about things that mattered to the people there at the time, so I had that edge, the home court advantage, but the thing was, you know, we would they'd fly us economy, because we were from the Middle East. I, we weren't getting paid. It was economy flights. Uh, we would stay in, ho- not in hotels, in apartments and share the rooms with other comics. Whereas these other comics who were nobodies, bar comics from here in the US or Canada or Europe, they would fly them in biz- first class, business class in the least, put them up in the presidential suites of these hotels. They'd meet the king and the queen. These are nobodies. Had them on billboards all across the country just because they flew in from America. It was absurd. And um, <clears throat> and a lot of people are like, Arabs hate Americans. I'm like, you have no idea how many Arabs revere Americans. And I remember the next year, I contacted the woman that runs this. And it, it, was, it was basically sanctioned by the king and the queen. It was an official event, but they weren't organizing. Obviously, they had people in the municipality and stuff organizing it. They had this venue that would fit, I think, 300 people a night at max capacity and um, people would try to buy tickets. They never could because the people who were selling the tickets would basically scalp all the tickets themselves and sell them at a premium. There was a lot of corruption and shit in it. It left a bad taste in people's mouth. We did it the first year. We did it the second. I don't know if I did it twice or once, but I remember the next time I called them and I said, look, you need to pay us, man. Like I'm, I'm clearly the most successful comic on that stage. People love watching me. Uh, I'm getting insane feedback. I can't walk in the streets without people stopping me. This is unbelievable. I need to get, I want to fly business. I want to get paid. By the way, a business class ticket from Lebanon to Jordan is like a business class ticket from Los Angeles to Phoenix, Arizona. It's going to cost you like 300 bucks. It's a very short flight, right? But I'm like, I just want the respect. I want to be flown business. 
I want to be in a hotel. I want to meet the king and the queen. Like, what the hell, man? And like, I want to be treated with respect or treat us all equally with disrespect. You don't pay anything. They don't pay anything. The venue's free. Their advertising's free. They have all the sponsors. Their flights are free. Royal Jordanian is sponsoring. And I remember the woman laughed at me on the phone and she said, uh, she said, Nimmer, some advice because you're still young. Um, know your place. I said, excuse me? She's like, know your place. We're doing you a favor by letting you in on this show. I was like, you know what? I don't need any favors. I'm out. And she laughed even harder. And she goes, what are you going to do? I said, I'm, I'll just do my own show. And she goes, you're going to do your own show? She said, I wish you the best of luck. And sl- slammed the phone in my face. So I booked a show at a place called Qasr al-Thakafi, the cultural palace in Jordan, which is a venue that I've done ever since every time I go back. And it's a gorgeous venue. It fits a 2,500 person capacity. She reached out to me when she found out I booked it and said that we're planning on doing the festival a month after your show. So I highly recommend you move the date because nobody's going to buy tickets to your show. They're going to buy three weeks after my show. Everybody's going to buy tickets to our show. And I'm saying this because I'm looking out for you. And she said it with such condescending, shitty attitude. I told her, thanks for looking out. Good luck with your show. So my one night was 2,500 people. Their six or seven nights were 2,100, 300 per show. We sold out two shows. That's 5,000 people. They didn't sell out theirs. And that was the last year that the Amman Comedy Festival ever operated. And I'm so proud of that. Because the people who showed up to those shows, the 5,000 people, those were the real Arabs. Those were my generation. They weren't the uh, confused... Um, dejected, failed previous generation that didn't know how to express their own failures so took it out on their own. And These were the true... Jordanian people are the most beautiful, amazing people I've ever seen. I remember when I go there, the organizers were like, good luck, nobody in Jordan laughs. And I was like, they are always laughing all the time. And I remember they had the backdrop of the stage was people like this. And they drew smiles on their faces. I was like, that's the shittiest fucking thing you could do. Like, those are your people. What are you doing? They're like, yeah, they should smile more. I'm like, do you know how messed up it is for the government to be telling people to smile more? (laughs) And they're smiling and laughing everywhere I go. And then they're like, yeah, but they don't laugh at anything. I'm like, because they have standards. It's ridiculous. Anyways, they come. We do those two sold out shows. It was a huge success. And and we had local comics and it was a huge thing. And then stand-up comedy just kept growing. Jordan, I owe so much to it because it was my first out of Lebanon experience, like on that scale. And then we all the shows that would follow across the Middle East, the shows that got bigger in Lebanon and Jordan, um, the shows that we went to Kuwait and did stand-up comedy there. Where in Kuwait, you can't dance. They'll have a DJ come over and a crowd of 5,000 people watching the DJ, but everybody has to stand still. And if anybody's kind of dancing, they come and take them to prison. You know what I'm saying? Uh, We're doing comedy shows there, challenging free speech there. Going to Saudi Arabia, doing all the illegal shows that I think I've talked about already on this podcast. If I haven't, tell me. I'll talk about it in a future episode. Illegal underground shows to bring women and men to sit next to each other. Breaking down barriers there. Uniting people there. Shows in Egypt, in Qatar, in in um, in the Sultanate of Oman, which is a beautiful place as well. Um, 
in Dubai, the Emirates, all of these countries, the scene just started to grow and grow over the years. And now you have comics. That's why I want to end this story on where stand-up comedy began, because I don't want people to think I'm going to try to take credit for the entire scene. I may have been, I was the catalyst. I was the first one to do it. I was the first one to say no to doing anything but this. I was the only person who was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be better than everybody. I'm going to compete on an international level. I'm going to raise my country and my people's name. I'm going to raise the region's name. I'm going to be somebody you can be proud of. I was the first one to do that. But since then, so much has happened. So many people have sacrificed. Because I sacrificed. I lost friendships, relationships. I lost so much money. Because <laughs> everything, I had to invest myself. And oh, there was one thing I mentioned last time. The story about, oh, I said I was going to talk about when I had to drive under the bullets. And this is the last story of the show today. Lebanon, in addition to everything it had handled and, and the stuff that I talked about in the show, in 2007, I can't remember the exact year, eight, there was a civil war of sorts. It was very confusing. The If you were to ask Arab people or Lebanese people, what do they want? They tell you, uh, leave us the fuck alone. That's it. We don't want... Leave it to ourselves. People say there'll never be peace in the Middle East. There, in Lebanon, there is, and there always will be. But there would be so much more peace if people would leave us alone. Leave us alone. ISIS is fucking all foreigners. Leave us alone. We, we're constantly caught in between proxy wars. I gave a talk called Arabs, America's Imaginary Enemy at Harvard. You can watch it here online. Go and just type Nimmer Harvard and you'll see it. And it was a talk about how extremists set out with the goal in the early 2000s to convince America that its enemy was Arab people and convince Arabs that the Americans were the enemy. And to a large part, they succeeded. And I refuse to accept that. They may have succeeded temporarily, but I'm trying my best to push back against that. And, and anybody who thinks otherwise is a fucking idiot. The people are subject to manipulation and foreign meddling on a level you could never understand. I laugh when I see what America calls foreign meddling or it's it's a joke. If you if if what Lebanon goes through on a Tuesday was to be spread out in America over a year, this country would collapse hands down. And this is something people don't underestimate about Arab people is that nobody leaves us alone. We're constantly caught in between proxy wars. You had in this year that I'm talking about, 2008 or 7, Hezbollah, which is basically Iran, and members in our government, which represent America, which is Saudi Arabia, Iran represents Russia and Syria. Um, Hezbollah had communications in the airports that it would use for spying, and the government side that wanted to take it out was accused of wanting to do that because they were working for Saudi Arabia and uh, it had nothing to do with Lebanon. So Hezbollah, which is arguably more powerful than our own military. I mean, they're the only people that fought Israel and won in the region and defeated them. Um, they're very well armed and very well trained. They took their weapons and turned them on the Lebanese people. And this is something a lot of people don't know. We don't fight our wars. 
I don't, I've been through countless wars since 1992 in Lebanon. I've never held a gun or shot a person. We stay at home when there's a war. Every time there's a war, it's not us. When America and Russia, Saudi Arabia and Iran, Syria and God knows who is duking it out in our country because they don't have the balls to do it themselves in their own countries, but they do it in our country, we sit at home and we wait for them to finish time and time again. And people don't understand the toll of these wars. A lot of people think, oh, it's a shame because of the electric. I'm going to give you the exact toll of the war. Imagine the graphic designer who just started a company for themselves, saved up money, worked hard. They opened a little office. They have two or three employees. They're growing. They get some investors. They get money. They secure a few good accounts. Then, because this is the internet age, they start competing for business across the world. Now they've got a big account for a client that they're pitching and they're hoping that they can get and it'll give them a ton of business for the rest of the year. They work around the clock. Months go into this. They do a whole branding package, the whole thing. A couple of days before they need to submit, war breaks out for no reason that has anything to do with the people that are in the country. The internet goes down. They can't submit their plans. They can't pitch. The airport is closed. They can't leave the country. They lose the business. Also, there's a war going on. For the next two to three months, nobody's making any money and nobody's working. So there's no money to be made. So now the, com the company goes out of business. The money that they invested is gone. That's what I want you to understand. Stability is the biggest victim of war. You can't make any plans. You can't plan ahead of time. That's why a lot of the people I work with are always shocked. Like, why are we selling tickets? Nimmer so close to the date. Why don't we sell in advance? Because that's become our culture. We don't plan in advance because our plans are always thwarted. So, this war happens. And Hezbollah, ironically, which for years had said they would never use their guns under any circumstance in Lebanon, which was always used to settle the debate as to why they should be unarmed, used their weapons in Lebanon for the first time. But the Lebanese people are the most wise and incredible people I've ever known in my life. Instead of doing what was clearly an attempt to break out a civil war in the country, the army, the people, they did not engage. The Sunni Muslims, so the, the, the Hezbollah went into Beirut where the Sunni Muslims lived. Instead of fighting, the Sunni Muslims left and came to the Christian areas. And then in other areas, like when Hezbollah dared to go up to the mountains, the shit was gangster. There's areas for a religious sect called the Druze. They had their women and children. The men didn't even come out. They had their women and children meet the convoys as they were coming up to the mountains with guns and pitchforks. And they killed them and cut up the bodies and laid their body parts on the street as a warning in case anybody else wanted to come back. That after, if you come back, you're going to have to go through our women and children and then the men. So, I mean, this is some gangster fucking shit, people. I need you to understand. And um, then Qatar, Qatar steps in and they helps resolve everything. And after two or three months, things return to normalcy. Everybody pulls back to their neighborhoods. During this time, Lebanon was getting slammed. Not just internally and not just by foreign forces much bigger than us, but by everybody. These Lebanese, they're never going to find peace. And this is Lebanon. It's the same thing all the time. And the Lebanese and people were losing money. The youth were losing hope. And I was sick and fucking tired. I had invested all of everything I had into creating stand-up comedy. Now it was a threat. Everything was. 
And I hated people bad-mouthing my country. I was tired of it, man. And there was a huge show that I helped. Like, I was a part of. Like, my scene made this show possible that was going down in Dubai. That Showtime was doing where they were bringing comics from all over the world. And nobody was going to represent Lebanon. And I found that unacceptable. So, in the height of the war, with shooting going on at the border... I left in a taxi cab, and I'm not the only one who did this. A lot of people did this because the airport was closed, so you couldn't fly out. I left in a taxi cab through the Syrian border under a hail of bullets. I remember the we're driving, the taxi driver started screaming, get down, get down. I lowered myself in the taxi, and bullets hit the car, and you could hear it. You'd hear them zipping over. You'd hear the sounds. It doesn't sound like in a movie. It sounds different, very violent. Um, And several hit the car, but I was fine. Obviously, I'm here. We made it through. I spent the night in a shit hotel that charged me $800 for the night, those fucking fucks, because they wanted, they capitalized basically on our suffering, jacked up the prices, $800, I couldn't sleep, the bed was for a child, so I didn't fit on it, the bathroom and shower were full of hair, so I couldn't shower or bathe, it was disgusting, I stayed in my room, I only had about three hours anyways, I stayed in my room, then we went to the airport, where we hit a bird on the way, which is aerodynamically impossible. We hit like four birds. It, aerodynamically, you're not supposed to hit birds while you're driving. And I remember telling the taxi driver, he's like, yes, yes, this is normal. I was like, what the fuck is going on? Anyways, we got to the airport. I fly into Dubai. I finally make it there. Um, the show is that night. By the time I get to stage, I legitimately, 48 hours, did not sleep a wink left under incredibly difficult circumstances. My parents were constantly worried about me, but I made it. And then I got onto that stage and the show was a fiasco. Um, They were running hours behind schedule. It was sold out. It was huge, but they were hours behind schedule. Everything wasn't working. Um, They allowed alcohol. So you had these British and Irish expats that were piss drunk in the crowd by the time I got on stage where it was taking almost everything for me just to stand up I walk out there and there's a a guy with a girl and he's basically fondling her she's in his lap they're making out he's got his hand down her pants in the front fucking row people are talking a fight breaks out over there and I, I risked my life to be here man I sacrificed everything to create this entire industry. And this is this is what you do? Without a sorry or an apology or anything. Just, yeah, shit happens. And that was when I realized that, I, that if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And that's why I became the man I am today that uses every meat. Like, I'm... A director. I learned to be a director. I know more about cameras and the technical aspect of everything about filming than you could imagine. I'm an audio engineer. I learned that as well. Do my own graphics and my illustrations. I had to get into every detail because I knew if I didn't control every single step of everything that I do, then I was only asking to be, to have everything I sacrificed thrown out the window. Money laundering was entering the stand-up comedy scene. People were doing events where they'd say, Eddie Griffin coming to Lebanon. Or Eddie Griffin going to this country. And then they'd bring Eric Griffin because they'd think that Arabs were idiots. 
And no diss to Eric Griffin. He's an incredible stand-up comic. That's disrespectful to Eddie and to Eric and to the people in the crowd, first and foremost. I ended up creating lists online called the Blacklist of Comedy, where I would put the names of promoters who would announce people that weren't actually coming. There was this Bahraini promoter in Bahrain, and I remember Ron Jossel, a Filipino comic, reached out to me and said, dude, can you do something? This guy's selling tickets to a show I'm not a part of. He's saying the show is tomorrow. I'm not on a plane. I don't know what he's talking about. I reached out to the guy. I told him he has to announce or else I'm going to make it public. And he was like, no, no, don't worry. We'll make a show for you here. Like, I'll take care of you. Don't worry about that. I was like, absolutely not. I made it public. Pressure mounted. We put him in prison. So when I say I was instrumental to the beginning of stand-up comedy in the Middle East or to all of it, I'm not exaggerating. It's not because I put on a few shows. It's because I went out and created my competition across the Middle East. I policed every single person who tried to do wrong. I stepped in and helped comics. I, you can't understand how many people have backstabbed me in this industry. You have no idea how many of them unknowingly did it in shows I got them booked on. Because I don't say it. How many comics went to do a show that I got them booked on, made them a lot of money. I just never told them. Because I never used to take commissions for this. I couldn't be a businessman. I had to be a man for the business. I understood that me taking commissions would taint it. People would be like, no, don't work with them. I can do it for cheaper, all of that stuff. I was like, no, I'm here to service your shit for free. I'm going to recommend comics for free for you. Book them. I don't want anything. I'm not going to take a booker's fee or any shit like that. Go and do it. Just make sure that you kill this thing. And let's put this scene together. When I say I was there every step of the way and I still am, you have to understand it wasn't just like me saying like, yeah, I was the first one to do a show. Who the fuck if it was I was the first one to do a show or not? It's the involvement on every single level to get to where we are today. And where are we today? We're in an incredible place. I'm no longer the only one sacrificing. We have comics all over the Middle East sacrificing. Whether it's the comedy club owner in Kuwait who has a wife and kids who opens up a comedy club and takes the risk. It might fail. He puts everything in it, but it doesn't. And it's a huge success. Or it's stand-up comics like Fahid al-Butairi in Saudi Arabia, whose wife is in prison because she was an activist so people could drive in Saudi Arabia. She drove and she was a blogger. So she's now in prison. They forced Fahid to divorce her. Fahid has disappeared. I have no idea where he is. Nobody's heard from him. And his wife is being sexually assaulted on a daily basis. People in the Middle East sacrificed to undo the mistakes of those that came before us. We all sacrifice because everybody before us fucked things up to such an extent that we have to do this now. Not for us, but for the next generation. For our kids, man. I don't know if I'll ever talk to Fahid al-Butairi again. And that, that makes me furious. I have no power over that. As an American, I was extremely privileged when I would do shows in Saudi or whatever. I knew as an American, I was protected. They'd never do anything to me. When I did my comedy special, No Bombing in Beirut, in the beginning of it, I put an inaugural address from John F. Kennedy, where he says, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And then I revealed that that quote was for Gibran Khalil Gibran the famous Lebanese author and poet. 
And before that moment, I have a, a text that appears on screen that says we are at our finest when our paths cross. Because it was written by a Lebanese author who left the Middle East in 1914. He was in New York writing about the Egyptian a revolution in Egypt. And had he not gone to America, become an American, where he was appreciated, he was never appreciated in the Middle East. He now is now, but he's appreciated more in the West than he is in the Middle East. He was in America writing for an Egyptian revolution. Had that not happened, an American writer who wrote the inaugural address for John F. Kennedy would have never seen that, which would have, that was one of the greatest American historical moments of all time was when JFK stood and united the country with that sentence. That moment would not have happened had our paths not crossed. So we are at our finest when our paths cross. As an American, I used my American side to be able to bring the Middle East together. Because my Arab side wouldn't be there for me. I knew my government would have... If I went to Saudi Arabia and did something, they threw me in prison, my government would have fight for me. I knew that they wouldn't do it because if I was an American, they'd be afraid of what the American government would do. Although today, I don't know if the American government would do anything anymore as well. Like as an American, I won't take risks anymore in countries like Saudi Arabia. That's Fadl Butayri was called the, um, the, the Arab Jerry Seinfeld. He was getting well-known here in America. He was featured in the New York Times. He was featured on incredible platforms. Nobody fights for him. Nobody says anything. The sacrifices of stand-up comedy in the Middle East aren't just the difficulty of putting a show together. They're the difficulty of challenging cultural norms and freedom of speech all over the region, navigating waters that are almost impossible. Lenny Bruce-esque levels of oppression and we have to do it with a smile on our face so when i say that this is how stand-up comedy in the middle east started i want you to know why stand-up comedy in the middle east today is the most revolutionary art form in the world because this is where it is and what it's dealing with and by telling you my role in it i want you to know my contribution i don't want you to assume my ownership because i am no more significant today than any of these other comics operating in the region. I was significant when I was alone, and I was significant for being the first, but I'm not significant anymore beyond the significance of all of us. And I am so proud that we have a stand-up comedy scene that I can lose my significance to. And that's where stand-up comedy in the Middle East is today. And I can't do anything for Fahd. My name is Nimr which means tiger, and Fahid is panther. But we come from different backgrounds. I was, I was privileged. He wasn't. His own country. Nothing you can do. The Lebanese, when I was saying earlier, they didn't, they didn't fight when Hezbollah did that thing. And I kind of went off on a tangent here. The Lebanese didn't respond. They just went to the different areas because they're wise. Because they know when they're being taken advantage of. When Saudi Arabia kidnapped our prime minister, they thought it would start a civil war as well. We just hung out. Because we noticed he wasn't wearing his smartwatch. So we used to make fun of his smartwatch because it would always be off. We're like, can't you afford a better watch? Obviously, it turns on when you look at it. And people were like, wait, he's not wearing his smartwatch. 
They took his things away from him. He's resigning under duress. He's been kidnapped. That's the wisdom of Middle Eastern people. And I'm, I'm sick and tired of people thinking people in the Middle East are a bunch of savages. People in the Middle East are the most advanced society of individuals in the world. We're dealing with the world's problems. You're solving your problems in our home. Leave us alone and let us thrive. And if you don't think that we're thriving already just by still being there, then you don't even know. And right now, today, I'm describing events from the 2000s and Saudi Arabia is a horrible place today. But countries like Lebanon have become some of the most beautiful progressive countries in the world. Struggles like mine were shared by people who have both become infamous and not famous at all for the change they've made. But there's change on every single level. And every single person in the Middle East contributed in one way or another for my generation and younger. And is continuing to contribute to make that a crazily incredible, incredible place. And I couldn't be more proud to call myself an Arab. And I couldn't be more proud to call myself an American for what it gave me. But I'm ashamed to say I'm an American today because of the way America is carrying itself in the world. And yeah, sure, the argument could be made that America never stood for the freedom of people. They only stood for the freedom of people when it suited their best interests. But at least we pretended. We don't even pretend anymore. And then yeah, maybe I'm just pissed off that uh, an American art form like stand-up comedy could be silenced. Uh, and uh, a guy would be forced to divorce the love of his life and his wife would be sexually assaulted and we don't even say a thing. So maybe it's just I'm biased. But that's where I'm going to end the show today. And that's where I end the, uh, the story of how stand-up comedy started in the Middle East. And before I go, I want to take a few questions. Fahid Afaf, any plans to go to Jordan, buddy? We really miss you. <laughs> my man, uh, I think you understood from my story how much I love Jordan and what it means to me. Uh, uh, I put out a video a few months ago because uh, a promoter in Jordan really messed up and canceled the show and I don't know what it was money laundering or whatever they were into and it was very shady and I promised the Jordanian people that I was going to be back and produce the show myself just like I do in Lebanon or in Dubai or in several other places because of how unprofessional everybody is and just like that story that I told you about what happened in Dubai same thing happening in Jordan I'm like I guess I have to take matters into my own hands so it turned out that when I put that video out, I got such an overwhelming response that I had too many good options. I didn't know which one was the best option. And I was really genuinely afraid that I put a show on in Jordan and it wouldn't be the greatest show that the Jordanian people have ever seen. So in July, I have a trip planned to go to Jordan and to finalize all the details. I'm just going to fly in, meet with a bunch of people, sign the contracts, book the venue, pay the money, and then come what may. Uh, I only know one thing. I'm going to make it the greatest stand-up comedy show anybody's ever seen in Jordan or otherwise I owe that much Maher Habub uh, <laughs> thanks a lot for what you said brother I'm not going to read it here but thank you that's very kind said I decided to take a leap of faith and try to do stand-up at a show at my uni this coming Tuesday at first I was all like hell yeah this is going to be easy but now I'm hella stressing any tips for my first proper try at stand-up yeah have fun have a good time, man. Stand-up is about having fun. Lose yourself on that stage so that you can, the crowd can lose themselves with you. And that's the hardest thing to think. See, Bruce Lee used to say when, when, when you first start, 
when before you learn how to fight, when you a, when you throw a punch, a punch is a punch and a kick is a kick. He goes, then when you start to learn how to fight, it's no longer that. The punch becomes a series of movements. Like, okay, I got to chamber and draw my strength from the ground and twist at the hip. No, I'm twisting too much my elbow. I need to keep it tight, no loose if it's a hook, but if it's a thing. And, and you do that for years in the kick and then put the, and then years later, after doing that over and over and over again, a punch is a punch and a kick is a kick. So until you become familiar with the original familiarity that you had, remember that you're trying to be funny. And you want people to have a good time. And you might overthink it, you might, but always try to go back to whatever feeling you had when you were making your friends laugh and everybody around you laugh and try to have that feeling on stage. And you're going to bomb. Maybe not the first time, maybe not the second time, but you're going to bomb. Maybe the first 50 times, you're going to suck. But here's the thing. Take solace. We all have a finite number of times that we're going to bomb on stage. It's inevitable. Every time you bomb, you're trying something out and finding out that it doesn't work. And if you don't take risks, you're never going to know what does work. So every time you bomb, be happy. That's one less time you're going to bomb in your life. There's a finite number of times that you're going to bomb in your life. Every time you bomb, know that it's become one finite minus one. So I take comfort in that. And don't, don't let it bother you. And a pro tip, if you do do a set and it really sucks, acknowledge it. Be like, well, you know, <laughs> this was pretty shitty, <laughs> but thank you guys for coming out. I promise you next time I'm going to try to do better. It's a work in progress. Note to self, never do these jokes again. People will laugh, man. If you keep it short, and here's my advice, even if you go out and you're killing it, no more than five minutes. Try to do three, three to five minutes. A great three to five minute set is much is it will is unforgettable a terrible three to five minute set is forgettable but a terrible 10 minute set is unforgettable and that shit will mark you for life so keep it short tony rahme asks has any of your parents ever sided strongly with a party political party i believe <laughs> since it's 2019 and we still see the new generation arguing and debating as if they're still living in the past how are you able to get out of being biased in any way so I would presume that this question is coming from the U.S., uh, seeing how divided America is today. And the youth of America are, uh, uh, the, the Arab youth, I've noticed that immigrants, Arab youth, Lebanese people in Lebanon, night and day different than Lebanese people here. It's weird, but the, the, you find a lot of division and extremism here that you don't find there. I just want to say that today you don't see the division and definitely. So I was there in the 90s and I'm there today in the Middle East and I can see things are <laughs> way better. There's as much division as there was in the 90s in America. It's a very normal discourse. Um, but for me in particular, my parents never sided with anyone because they always said like they taught me from a young age, never, ever side with anyone politically because a politician will throw you under the bus to get reelected. They don't care about you. They care about the money they're making, the houses they build for themselves. They don't give a shit about you. They're just using you to build those houses, make those money, and further their own objectives through corruption. So why would you put your life on the line for them when they wouldn't do the same for you? And I was told stories of my grandfather, Nimir, the original one that I come from. Uh, I was named after him, who you know, used to do these paintings. If you follow me on Instagram, I had these portraits up that he would do with wood. He'd use different colored 
wood and different shades to create these elaborate, intricate works of art. And um, he would do two-sided, one political party and the opposite political party on the other side. Depending who was rolling through during the Civil War, he'd flip the pictures in the house so that they wouldn't get attacked. Politics is a game you need to understand, not so you play it, but so you survive it. I meet people who are like, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat. You're an idiot. You should be neither. You should be an American. Or I'm with this party or with that party, or I'm this religion or that religion. You're an idiot. You should be a human. Maybe, yeah, you lean towards one direction because they tend to side better with you. But if we're going to be honest, there was never a candidate that perfectly encapsulated what we wanted. And there never will be. Politics gets decided in the tug of war. It doesn't get decided in one side or the other. So my parents taught me that when I was young, man. You grow up fast in the Middle East. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. This episode was pretty long. I'm looking right now. But um, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I have uh, upcoming shows. Irvine on Wednesday. And uh, at the Irvine Improv. Toronto on May 4th. May the 4th be with you. Tickets are on sale at nimmercomedy.com. And No Bombing in Beirut is now available worldwide. Uh, It's available depending on your geographical region. But it's available on Amazon, Hulu, um, on uh, Vimeo, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, audio only. If you don't find it on the platform, you're probably in a geographical location where it's not available there. And I know it's Vimeo worldwide. You can buy it and download it for free. I mean, for free. Download it and own it forever. It's not for free. And it can't be for free because to get it on these platforms, you got to pay. So, you know. Um, so it's available worldwide for anybody who wants to enjoy it. And I really hope you do. In the coming week or two, I'm going to be making my other specials available on my website. And I'm going to be making it so you go to nimmercomedy.com. You can see my other specials. You can see No Bombing in Beirut. Link to it from there. So that's all coming up as well. But thank you guys so much for tuning in. I had a great time with you today. This concludes the story of how stand-up comedy began in the Middle East. And um, I can't wait to see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.